Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. Speaking of product people, the podcast is up on Product Hunt. If you like this episode or any of my episodes, I'd love it if you could take a look, show your support, and contribute to the conversation and let people know what you really think. The link's in the show notes or you can find it on producthunt.com. If you missed the boat, don't worry, you can always go to my website, onenightinproduct.com, sign up on the mailing list or find me on your favourite podcast app and make sure you never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we'll be talking about what happens when a global pandemic hits you right in the roadmap and speak to someone working in product for a big retail company who saw all her plans turn into dust. We talk about some of the challenges that arose, how the company rallied and came up with a new plan, some of the lessons the team learned and whether these lessons will continue to pay off in the future. We also reflect on one of the harsh realities of retail product management, the dreaded time-based roadmap and hard deadlines. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is Rihanna Matthew. Rihanna's a passionate advocate of tech for good and making sure she impacts the world in a positive way. Starting out as a dancer and TV extra, so I'm sure she knows Ricky Gervais, and surprisingly passionate about Sudoku's, Rihanna's now taking her paper and pencil and trying to solve the biggest puzzle of all, product management, as a senior product manager at Publicis Sapient. Rihanna hates wasting time, so I'm going to hurry up, and I'm hoping we'll make it through to the end of this interview, and she doesn't hang up halfway through. Hi Rihanna, how are you tonight? Hello, I'm good, thank you. What an intro. <laughs> <laughs> Give it the welly up front. So first things first, you are senior product manager at Publicis Sapient. Now, I don't know what the collective noun for product managers at Publicis Sapient is, but we've had at least one of them on before. But in your words, who are Publicis Sapient and what problem do they solve? Sure. So Publicis Sapient are a digital business transformation consultancy. I think around two years ago, we kind of transformed our strategy and consulting arm to specialize in product. So we are now a whole craft of product managers. So everything from product managers through up to directors of product and the levels in between. And what we do specifically in our, our domain is we coach our clients on product ways of working. We teach them how to product manage and in some ways empower them to go and product manage and, and run a product organization themselves. And then we step away in a nutshell of what we do. And that's across, you know, end-to-end product life cycle through from blank slate ideation all the way to scaling, like every single part of product management. So you say coaching and it's interesting the thing you say around stepping away afterwards as well. Like you're sitting there working with them to ensure that they've got, I guess, good product management practices. And I don't know if you get involved in that hiring and stuff as well, but do you get involved in the nitty gritty of actually building, say, MVPs and then hand that over and then they take it and run with it? Or do you kind of work with them on an ongoing basis after that? Yeah, it's a bit of both. In some instances, it's a long-term partnership. In others, we're more standing them up and empowering them. Either way, it's how best we can help that client. And we work across different uh, industries from banking, retail, telco, consumer products. So in some ways, we would come onto a long-term partnership and we would be the product managers for years. In other times, we're helping them stand up a whole product organization, helping them set up that operating model, hiring and coaching product managers, and then handing over. It really depends from client to client, really. And have you personally worked in both of those models or have you very much sort of stuck in one or do you have, have you worked in both and do you prefer one or the other? That's a good question. I have done both. 
both at Publicis Sapient, but I've also worked at Accenture. So another consulting arm that do both the long-term partnerships and then more shorter stint projects. I like doing things end-to-end. So seeing something that goes from your idea and your, your kind of brainchild in a way and actually seeing that come to fruition. And then you usually do it in a partnership with the client, whether they're hands-on or hands-off, they're involved in some way or another. So I like both, but there's something really rewarding about being able to coach a client and being able to see them do it by themselves. And as a consultant, your main job is to make yourself redundant, which can be a really, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really um, hard concept to come to grips with, with they actually don't need me, but that's when you know you've done a good job. So a mix of both approaches, I think, is really good experience. Oh, that's fair enough. Uh, it's that similar thing about, you know, putting someone on their bike and then watching them cycle off in the distance and they don't need their training wheels anymore. Mm-hmm. But what do you specifically product manage for Publicis Sapient or which client or what type of client are you working for at the moment? Sure. So over the last few years, I've been specializing more with retail clients, both at Publicis Sapient and Accenture. I can't mention exactly which clients, but over the last year and a half, I've been working with a global jewelry brand. And the majority of my experience has been around omnichannel solutions. So things that go from an e-commerce platform through to in-store and connecting the in-store shopping experience somehow to online. So particularly with the jewelry brand, we've been looking at their omnichannel solutions around fulfillment and an LMS. So things like click and collect and also endless aisles. So when you're in, in-store and things are out of stock, how do you get those ordered for a customer? And the last year we saw click and collect boom. I think it, it <laughs> the amount of the amount of uh, retailers in the UK that had to have click and collect, partly due to COVID and partly just due to its convenience. Um, so that's one part of what I've been doing. I've also been looking at some COVID mitigation products. So last year we were on a kind of a task force pulled in by the C-suite of what do we do about COVID. So a really cross-functional team from product through to uh, the digital IT teams retail and marketing and it was a real end-to-end blank slate what do we do let's come up with some solutions so a few of those which you can see are live on this global jewelry brand there's four that that sat with myself so one was a virtual try-on tool so how can we see jewelry on my hand or my, my neck and kind of picture it on myself without having to go in store that was a real pain point that we found from research the second solution was around remote selling so again people that don't want to go in store and they may be shielding because of COVID or they're just afraid to go in store, how could we recreate that shopping experience for them using technology? So a one-way video call. And then the third solution was around virtual queuing. So as a lot of people dwell outside stores, how could we use technology to solve that pain point? So through either QR codes or maybe we could text them when it's their turn, similar to a lot of restaurant apps, but a lot of shops now taking this on board as well. And then the fourth was we did a little bit around appointment booking and trying to plan your in-store visit as people are now a little bit apprehensive about coming in store in and out of lockdown so in a nutshell i've been looking at kind of omnichannel solutions but then how do we adapt those in this new crazy socially distanced world that we found ourselves in yeah it certainly sounds intense to be working for any kind of retail outlet or retail firm in times like these and i know we'll go into that a bit more in a short while and start talking about some of the things that you had to do to get through that period but before we do that i want to go into a few details around how you got into product management in the first place. I mean, you said, obviously, you worked at Accenture for a bit. You've been working at Publicis Sapient for a bit. You studied maths and management at uni. So you've obviously got a technical or technically aligned skill set and interests. And obviously, alongside the management and the business side, 
So was it that that really gave you the passion and the spark to do this? Or was it something that was there before and that was just the expression of it? Or was it something that you picked up afterwards? Yeah, good question. How did I end up in product management? I suppose I went for, so I studied mass and management, partly because I always just like numbers and things being empirical and there being a right (laughs) and wrong answer. (laughs) And then I ended up on the Accenture grad program kind of because I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I'd had a taste of kind of events planning and and working in. I had a kind of a few modules around uh, different businesses that we could go and do some case studies for. And I got a bit of a taste for it and I thought, I need a job. So I'm going to tell Accenture that I really want this job, even though I don't have it all sussed out at 21. <laughs> so I ended up at Accenture, and it's a really really good place just to understand the absolute fundamentals of digital development, end-to-end, each pocket of it, each industry, and you just learn everything really quick. They rotate you quite quickly. And there's so much going on that there's probably, I don't know, a thousand grads, and no one is doing the same job. So from there, I kind of went in as a business analyst, supporting product teams. And kind of working my way up from, you know, my hands dirty in Jira through to some project management, through to just understanding, you know, the business side of things, the customer side of things. And then at Accenture, I landed my first product role working for a home retailer and like an innovation hub of how do we make DIY more accessible to people. And that's where I really realized that all my business analyst skills really applies to being a product owner, but with more accountability and more purpose. Or at least I felt that kind of I felt more purpose of actually doing the role with with the title, and then I kind of find myself as a product owner. I really loved it. I loved having something that had an impact on the customer. I loved doing something that was really customer facing. Sometimes I was doing things on on the back end and more about operational efficiency, and I just liked having that impact on a real person. And then from there, the, the switch over to Publisher Sapien was because they were specialising in product management and realised that you know product is the future. And I think it was a great call from them. And that's where I kind of grew as a, as a product manager into the senior product manager. And that's how I've ended up in the, the career path that I'm in. But I, I really enjoy it. I find it really rewarding. And it kind of, I'm a bit of a generalist. And it pulls together all parts of being a generalist, understanding how things work, getting them done, and everything like that. No, absolutely. And obviously, it really rewards generalists as a general profession. But you've always worked at consultancies, so far at least building products for other companies. Have you ever felt that you're missing something, like missing that full stack product management experience where you've kind of gone in maybe to an early stage startup or mid-stage startup or something like that, and you're there and you're kind of so close to the metal because you're in and around and surrounded by the company and you're living and breathing it, as opposed to being, as you've put earlier, in some cases, kind of in and out? Have you ever felt that that's been an itch you wanted to scratch or do you feel that you're getting everything you need from product management in the bounds of what you're doing at the moment? In short, yes. Yes, I think you get everything you need as as a consultant. I think sometimes there is a misconception that the consultants come in and tell you how to do things, watch you do it and then leave. And and that's really not the case. When I say an in and out project, even those are six months, like you're really standing something up and that's not a short amount of time. That can in itself be the end-to-end product life cycle depending on on the scope so now i think there really is kind of a misconception around what consultants do because i've been on the same client for a year and a half and i'm a fully embedded member of the team people don't realize that i'm external if it wasn't for my my email address at times (laughs) which is great it's great to be a, a part of their team and you have to think like the client there's no opposing goals right you both want the same thing you want 
the same things to be successful. And I feel like that's kind of the secret to success of consulting is when you find that aligned vision, it just kind of works. You don't have to think about who's reporting into who and who manages who. It can just work. I think one of the best bits of feedback we had when I was working at Accenture in this innovation hub, we had two different consultancies there and the client, which they were rapidly recruiting for. And I think some of the VPs came in and they said, I didn't know who was Accenture. I didn't know who was client. I didn't know who was the other consultancy. Like no one could tell. So in answer to your question, I think you you can get everything you want as a consultant and more. Often, sometimes consultants are their necks are on the line a little bit more. So you can get kind of maybe the riskier products or the more unknown comes the ambiguity. It's definitely a big thing with consultancy. There's no brief of we want you to deliver this loyalty scheme, for example. It's we have a problem. We have no idea how to solve it. So you've got to be really proactive kind of problem solver. And yeah, I'm a big advocate for consulting. Oh, that sounds fair enough. I'm sold. Yep. <laughs> but one of the things we talked about before this and touches on some of the themes that you've just talked about was how COVID blew everything up for your product because you're working for a retail company, omnichannel, as you say. So working with physical stores as well as online. And obviously online had a massive boom in COVID times because that was the easiest way and in some cases the only way to buy things. But there's got to have been a massive impact on some of the other stuff that you were working on. And you had to work out a way to survive that. So when it became clear to you and your team what was going to be happening and obviously the lockdown and some of the impact that that's going to have on some of the stuff that probably until fairly recently before that you were working on and going all, all guns blazing on. Was it kind of calm and considered or was there like an almighty panic on day one? It's a good question. I suppose the whole COVID thing was a little bit bubbling for a while because it came about in like December, November, it was on the news. January, February, still talking. And I think March was when, you know, everything came grounding to a halt. And then I think the first month, people were just thinking, how do we continue our jobs? And then the first murmurings of COVID and, and this, this COVID rescue team was around mid to end April. So I wouldn't say it was like day one, but it was pretty soon after that they realized we need to do something about this. We need to, we can't just adapt our existing products, which is what we did. We need to have a dedicated team to be thinking about this and having some mitigation products. So no, it wasn't like a day one thing, but I think it was very clear that something needed to change and something was going to change to be able to manage COVID and its impacts. And that in itself was hugely ambiguous because every assumption we have made about our customers before then, I use the analogy, it's like um, the opening shot on snooker. Like, this is my idea of everything that's going on. And it just went, like, it just went everywhere. Like, (laughs) nothing I'd assumed before was the same again. I kind of felt a little bit clueless and uneducated for my job. I was like, I don't know what anyone wants. I speak to my friends and family and all their behaviors have changed. and I'm surprised by them. Like it really felt like starting from like square one pretty much of, okay, let's talk to a customer and how do you feel and what are your behaviors, what are your wants and needs? And then it was really taking things back to the drawing board, which was challenging, but really insightful to learn from, you know, what customers want, what people want. Yeah, because you basically had to reinvent the product strategy and refocus it around the new normal and work out, amongst other things, a a way to sell jewelry through a lockdown. So that's obviously not the first thing people worry about in general about lockdowns. And it does sound like a bit of a first world problem in some ways, because obviously you can live without it if you need to. But at the same time, this is your job. And you had to find a way through that. Was that something that you led yourself and you were very much the spearhead? Or was this something that either a client or your company itself felt the need to kind of take from the top down 
and impose a solution based on some of the stuff that you've said to them or some of the feedback that you gave them? So I think when it first sparked in mid-April, this came from the very top, right? So this was a CEO-sponsored thing of we need to get together a team, and that's when I was called upon to come off my kind of regular rollout of, of Omnichannel onto this task force. But then that was just, you know, the igniting, the need for the change. And then as we kind of went through end-to-end ideation, define, validation, it really came from the bottom up. We went straight out to the store associates, straight out to customers, and heard everything from them and assumed nothing. So whilst we had kind of guiding leadership in terms of yes and no and, and, and kind of decisions, a lot came from our customers because we had no clue of what they wanted. Things we assumed on Tuesday were different on Wednesday. Like it was really fast paced, especially as it's a global brand and every market was handling the situation differently, different regulations, different responses from, from customers. So yeah, it was it was a really kind of ambiguous ask. But we had to just go from the data and start speaking to people from day one. Yeah, I was going to ask like how you approached it. And you touched on it a bit there. Obviously, talking to people, talking to a lot of people from the sounds of it, trying to get what data you can. But were there any approaches or methodologies or anything that you could effectively pull in from your previous experience that made it a lot more helpful? Because it's actually really common for you know, when companies panic. It's really common for them to just revert to type or go back to old bad practices or try and micromanage their way through it because they don't really know. As you say, it's too ambiguous. They don't really have an idea. They don't have a plan. And they panic and they go back to what they think are basics. So how did you approach that? What techniques did you use to really make sure that you were continually delivering value throughout? Sure. So I I think it kind of comes from the sapient health framework that we used, which is end-to-end business transformation, but we crunched it down into six months. It's a very tight timeline. So it was through from what we call ignite, hunt, shape, incubate, and then build and scale. So very high level. The hunt or the ignite, sorry, is, is understanding the reason for change. So, you know, it can be as simple as one line saying COVID's coming, like what's going to happen? It can be that that simple. But I think the really formative part was the hunt and looking for opportunities. So with that, we kind of applied some design thinking methodologies. We spoke to customers, we spoke to store associates, we spoke to the business. We didn't want to, although we were one team, we didn't want to ignore things that we'd tried in the past, all the learnings from the company. And from that, got kind of the the cogs turning in everyone's brains and, and built ourselves an ideas backlog. And I think it was around 120 ideas or something that we had. Oof. Yeah, so then what we did with those 120 ideas was together as a team was validating those and narrowing them down by speaking more to customers, more rounds of interviews with the different markets, with different um, frontline staff, our customers, and then also around the business still. And then landed on, I think it was 11 ideas that we would then flesh out into prototypes, four of those which were digital. And then that was a mix of all three lenses of the desirability, the business viability, the cost and expected revenue. And then the feasibility. So how are we going to build this? It was like May or June, I think at the time, June. And with retail, you either have to get it live before Black Friday or don't get it live at all. So it's a very short time to build it, pilot it, get some learnings and scale, which hadn't really been done before. So it, it was kind of record timing of how we had to apply all of those three lenses very quickly and keep validating as we go taking small risks and then larger risks. And each time you do something, you learn something, and then you can build on it. But product managers traditionally hate timelines. 
and dates on roadmaps, right? Mm-hmm. But it sounds like this is just a story of your life if you're working with retail. Is that fairly common even before this that you, like you say, you've got Black Friday, fine, and I guess you've got Christmas and stuff like that. So there are some immovable dates that you have to hit, but does that mean that a lot of your development, both before, during, and after this, is very time-bound, as in date-bound, or do you have a lot of flexibility outside of those windows? Yeah, I suppose it is quite date-bound, and I get why people don't like having hard dates and it becomes you know, a project plan as opposed to a product roadmap. I do understand that. I kind of, I'm a little bit in between because I love a delivery plan and a roadmap and I love, <laughs> a, I love a commitment of a date. But I also like the freedom of having a product roadmap when you're going to, I don't know, improve traffic by X percent by Q2 at some point. And the way in which you get there is, is quite loose. What was different on this project last year, because it was so specific in a way that we had to solve COVID, we had to mitigate the impacts of COVID. We, we kind of had to go with a day-by-day plan at times. And we even had to go out of our realms of product managers. So myself and my team goes beyond the roadmap, the development, the build, the design, and into things such as like business change and the setup and the implementation. Do you have iPads? Do you have Wi-Fi surveys done? And kind of, it was very much an all hands on deck thing. So whilst we took some of the best practices from product, we did also have to lean on some of the best practices from project managers and program managers just to get it done in time. Because things that would usually take a week of maybe, you know, the next month's planning or sprint planning would take, you know, half an hour or an hour. Like it was just, I'd write it to do this in the morning and by lunchtime, I'd have to rewrite it. So we can <laughs> work on those tight timelines. Do I think it's going to be like that forever? I don't know. I feel like things like Black Friday and some of these dates aren't going to move, but maybe we're going to be a bit more ahead of the game this time because we're now prepared for things such as COVID. It won't be a last minute rush. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I say that now. <laughs> <laughs> but there's obviously debate around whether you can learn product management from a book, from courses, from YouTube videos, from podcasts like this, I guess. You've obviously yourself been through the wars a bit in the last few months, a year, trying to refocus and bring your product back to where it needs to be and make sure you can succeed under the new normal. So I think it's fair to say that's been a bit of a trial by fire. How do you think that that's affected either your decision making or maybe some of the ways that you approach your job? And how do you think that that's going to impact you in the future and and how you approach problems in the future? Yeah, 100%. I think one of the key learnings of the project last year was it was a success. Now we need to understand why it was a success and can we do it again? And I think one of the big things is just the COVID effect. You keep hearing people talk about what drove um, change in your business. Was it your CEO, your CTO? You know, it was COVID. (laughs) And as much as it's a bit of a cliche now on, on LinkedIn, I just think it's so true that people weren't able to do things so quick because we thought it was impossible until our hand was forced. And something that took 18, 24 months now became six months. And we looked around, you know, the dust settled, everyone survived, no one left the company, you know, and it was doable, it was successful. And it's really hard to translate that over to another project of how did you do it so quickly? But I think one of the things, well, one of the many things I've learned from last year is that you can make decisions quickly. There is a trade-off between diving really deep into the data and then actually just getting on with it. And there's a balance, right? You can be too gung-ho, but I think sometimes we can focus so much on understanding the analytics, understanding all the data, looking at all the possibilities. And it is good to have that well-rounded view, but you can definitely analyze for too long and put it off. And if I compare it to the project I was on pre-COVID, 
we'd have a sticker, we'd have a decision, we'd talk about it, we wouldn't really get the decision and we'd come back to it two weeks later. Mm, what do we think about that? Mm, yeah, let me go follow up with that person. And it just would go on like that for a few weeks. Whereas now you'd have a call, stand up in the morning, we need to have a go on this because Black Friday's in two weeks and I need a week to QA and deploy it, for example. The decisions come thick and fast, you know. So I do think timelines and, and things like that are a really good thing in some way. I know people don't like them because it's very specific, but <laughs> it, it, you know, it gets it gets stuff done and, and, and it's possible to, to do things quicker than you thought was, you know, not doable before. And then going forward, do I think that this will continue to happen? I don't know. It depends what we think the COVID effect is going to be like because I don't think things are going to settle. I think everyone's going to have maybe, like we were the COVID rescue team in a way, I think they're always going to have a team like that ready to go in case something like this ever happens again. I think people are more prepared that things change and they change fast. Yeah, let's wait for COVID-21. <laughs> I think it's interesting, though, the point you made around like not waiting for too long, avoiding analysis paralysis and proceeding when you've got just enough information, which I think is a really important point and something that I think I'd advise any product manager to do is not sit there spinning your wheels, waiting for everything to be perfect. Because unless it's truly uh, an irreversible decision, like if I do this, I'm on the roller coaster and I'm gone, you know, there's no way back, then sure. But if you've got an ability to course correct afterwards, then as long as you've got X, well, I don't know what X percent is, but let's say 70, 80% certainty, you should be quite comfortable moving forward. And as long as you're inspecting as you go, then you should be fine, right? Yeah, 100%. And and even if you don't have that data, like we didn't last year, we'd spoken to maybe 15 customers and not even all of our markets. We were taking our next best guess. There's so much tech out there and so many startups and scale-ups available that you can kind of lean on them to go and try it. Do a little two-week pilot, two weeks development, two weeks live, and learn by doing. You don't need to spend an awful lot. You don't need to dedicate a team. Like I feel like businesses just beyond retail. So just do these little pilots and try it with all the tech that's out there. It doesn't need a heavy investment. You can just go and try and learn by doing. And then the data that you get is solid enough to then make a decision of your long-term strategy rather than, you know, another PowerPoint and another research. And as much as it's good, I just think the best way to learn is, is getting out there and doing it. If it fails, that's still something you've learned. Absolutely. But one thing you call out, in some of your medium writings, and I know you're very keen on writing about these topics, is around mindset and mental health. And obviously, many people have had their challenges through the pandemic. Many people will continue to have challenges after the pandemic. But how has that whole experience been for you? I mean, it sounds pretty intense. So did you feel during that that you were able to keep yourself kind of on your game and not get overwhelmed and protect your mental health? Or did you feel that that was something that was kind of slipping away from you as you were going? Yeah, it's a good question because I think it's the understatement of the year that last year was tough for everyone, whether you're the CEO or whether you found yourself furloughed or, you know, all my friends and family, we struggled, right, in different ways. And I learned a lot in terms of how to approach work and how to balance it because I had no other distractions. I fully invested every ounce of myself into work, maybe a little bit too much, and then I had to learn my own boundaries and set boundaries with myself. And part of what helped me do that was just on LinkedIn or on Medium or on Facebook, different articles and different people sharing their experiences around how they've handled generally the pandemic and their mental health, but also how they approach work. People can become too invested in it. 
you can care too much. You can stress too much. Some people are workaholics. Some people aren't as invested in you. And there's just all these different personality types. And you also just don't know what other people are going through. So when I would find myself kind of on a call and maybe getting frustrated with someone, I had to remind myself that we're all going through our different stuff right now. And kind of keeping yourself aware of that and that we're all struggling kind of just kept me quite level-headed. I say that, level-headed at times. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. I think everyone struggled last year in terms of mental health. Everyone struggled some way in terms of work. If you didn't have work, that was really you know unfortunate. If you were working too much, you felt guilty because you had a job and some people didn't. And there was kind of different reactions. Some people checked out of what they were doing. Some people invested too much. And I think it's just being aware of how you approach your work and your day-to-day life so that it doesn't consume you and you remain productive because you're going to end up being you know, counterproductive if, if you stress yourself out too much and, and burn out. And you just kind of got to keep on top of your mental state, a quick happiness check-in with yourself every now and then. Yeah, absolutely. It's obviously a really important thing and something that I've covered before with actually one of your compatriots from Publicist Sapient around some of the challenges of staying centred and making sure that you can cope your way through it. So hopefully as things start to unlock, that will be something that becomes a little bit easier. Although now we're obviously in a situation where people are now getting anxious about integrating back in with traditional society again, right? Because it's been so long. Yeah. And I think part of it is how it's a very personal thing of of how you approach your work. Some people can work at the same company and, and not work too much or overwork. And I think it's different personality types, understanding how different people work. Some people like to work weekends. Some people need to have two hours switch off lunch and you can't judge them for that. Some people block two hours every day as as kind of focus time and they need that. And I've just learned to be a little bit more, well, a lot more accepting of how other people work because they might really disagree with the way that I work. And it's all just finding that way that works for each of us. And I wouldn't say that I fully figured it out, especially as now, you know, we're still going to start heading back into the office and this kind of hybrid of work from home and work in the office approach. It's going to be an interesting time. And I think just the key is understanding. And lucky I work for an employer that's really understanding of everyone's personal needs. Absolutely. You're also passionate about tech for good and making a positive impact through technology. Is that something that you get through your day job or is that something that you have to work around and you know volunteer or obviously with your writing and other initiatives that you're in? Like how, how do you how do you try and contribute or what are some of the key initiatives that you try to contribute via? Yeah, I'm lucky enough to be able to do it in my day job and it's really rewarding. There's been times in the past where I haven't been able to or I've not been invested in the purpose behind a project or a product. And that's where I've kind of turned more to writing, looking at things completely out of my comfort zone, such as artificial intelligence and is it ethical, the different uses of it and and things like that. I find really interesting Um, different innovations from maybe the likes of Facebook and, you know, are these things helpful or are they intrusive and just really enjoy reading up on it, understanding it, and then somehow applying it to then my clients, even though it can seem worlds apart. But definitely in the last year, it's everything has been around the customer and how do we make their lives easier. It hasn't been around money, 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 and let's get revenue. Our key metrics were on NPS and our survey results. Particularly the virtual queuing wasn't really a revenue driver. It was more around making people feel safe and looked after in a way that was seamless. So I'm lucky enough to to definitely be able to embed a tech for good approach and look at the things we're doing. And it's not just about how quickly can we get their data, how quickly can we get them to convert, but are people happy? Are they comfortable? 
particularly now, I think a lot more businesses are aware of it because everyone's a lot more sensitive because of COVID, because of the pandemic. People are more that they won't shop at things even if they want to because they're scared. So we have to be a lot more sensitive because it'd be so easy, one bad interaction, and your customers are completely uh, untrusting of your brand. So I think tech for good isn't just about the wider societal impacts, but also just understanding your customer and truly caring for their needs above the business needs. I think as more and more brands become aware of tech for good and having a positive impact on society, I think they're seeing the benefits. I think they're seeing the good press, but also the impact of the trust they're getting and the loyalty they're getting from customers. And it's definitely becoming less of a novelty and more of a must-have. So it's a really interesting and it's a rewarding space as well to be able to do something that has purpose and you feel like you're doing a bit of good in the world. It's nice. (laughs) No, absolutely. I think it's something that we should all aspire to and not everyone gets to, depending on obviously the type of work that they're doing, type of companies that they work for. I've always sat there and thought, as long as I'm not actively harming people, then at least I'm net neutral at the very least. But yeah, whatever you can do to make someone's life a little bit easier seems to be a really valuable goal. Yeah, especially in the pandemic when, you know, all the frontline workers are there working so hard and you're like, oh, what am I doing? And it's like, I'm just behind my laptop all day product managing. <laughs> um, and it can seem really far removed. But when you hear feedback of, for example, the the virtual try-on tool, I think some feedback was, I'm scared to go in and buy my granddaughter her present, but you've been able to do that for me today and, and things like that. It, it, it does have that little rewarding feel of, okay, I've not saved a life today, but I have given a little moment of delight into someone's day with something cool that we've built. So every little helps in a way. <laughs> yeah, we can't all be lifesavers. And where can people catch up with you after this if they want to find out more about some of the stuff they've heard or try and work out which jewellery company you're working for? <laughs> yeah, you'll be able to find it out very easily from my LinkedIn, but I'm quite active on LinkedIn. You can catch me there. I also have a blog on Medium, which is linked on uh, on my LinkedIn. You can find it there. Um, and I haven't been very active on Twitter, so do not find me on Twitter. <laughs> I would just say LinkedIn and Medium is a good place to, to find me and start a conversation. I will make sure to appropriately note them down, and hopefully you'll get a cascade of people heading your direction. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So that's been a really interesting chat, and obviously really interesting to hear some of your experiences through COVID and how you've managed to apply that in the tricky world of retail. Hopefully you're on the way out of that now and can start to have some interesting experiences. Uh, hopefully we can stay in touch too, but as for now, thanks for taking the time. Cool. Thanks for chatting. Bye. As ever, thanks for listening. If you like this episode and fancy a little bit more, then again, why don't you pop over to the website, onenightinproduct.com, check out some of my other fantastic episodes with inspiring guests. Make sure you sign up to the mailing list or subscribe on your favourite podcast app, and also share it with your friends. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but as for now, thanks and good night.